0: So way back in the mists of time, going back to, oh, must be early 2016, I don't have been doing this for a few weeks, when I first embarked on a series. It went by the name of Seven Days, and well, <laughs> those who heard it will know that I didn't really know what I was doing back then, and it was something that I always wanted to return to, I always wanted to give it a second chance, especially given the fact that um, it was a nine-part story and I only did the first seven days. Never actually got around to finishing it until now. So, here it is. Brand new, revamped, and accompanied by the gentle sounds of a rainstorm. So, my dear friends, it's Wednesday. It's time to sit back and relax with your favorite drink and listen. Day one. Seven days. That is how long it took... For James to die It's insane What a lightning strike Can do to the brain Typically When someone is struck On the top of the head They die immediately It took James Seven days We found him in the field Behind his parents' old farmhouse Lying beneath an old oak tree the tree was gone, though, reduced to glowing embers and a black scar on a mostly green hillside in the field in James's backyard. Investigators found that the fire had started with James's hair, burnt down his clothes to his shoes, across the grass, and eventually took the tree down to smouldering ashes by the time we found him. The storm wasn't as bad as you'd think. Just a lot of wind and a slight drizzle. But the lightning was bizarre. This gloomy Thursday has been reported as the day with the most confirmed lightning strikes in the Midwest during tornado season. If you're familiar with tornado season in the Midwest, you'll understand how incredible that fact really is. Four people in my hometown of Descartes, Missouri were struck by lightning on Thursday and a total of 23 trees were burnt to the ground. Two houses were also destroyed in the fires caused by the lightning. James was the only victim to be found alive after being struck. We knew James was out in the field. Sarah told him not to go outside after hearing on the news of widespread lightning in the area. But James insisted on taking his dog, Charlie, on a walk. Sarah, Jenny, and I were hanging out at James's house, watching movies, since we had nothing better to do when the weather was bad. Descartes is a small town with a population of around 4,000 in a pretty remote part of the Ozarks a large clearing surrounded by dense national forests encompassing the town. We'd just started watching Jenny's favourite movie, Schindler's List, when James decided to take Charlie outside. Three hours later, the movie was over and James had not returned. When Sarah realised he hadn't come back into the house, she was very worried. I wasn't too worried about it because James was always getting distracted by something and I was sure he was just sitting outside watching the storm. When the three of us walked outside, the first thing we saw was a smoke coming from the top of the small hill. Immediately, Sarah gasped with a weak squeak in her voice and took off running across the field to where the tree once stood. As we chased her up the hill, I could see what looked like a lump of black, white, and red coal. Upon reaching the crest of the hill, in the crust of the burning black oak and grass turned to ash, I realized the smoldering pile was James. Sarah screamed a scream that makes my skin prickle, even thinking about it today. The girls were inconsolable immediately upon this realization and I was in complete shock. I had never seen human flesh burnt as severe as James's entire body was that day. If third degree burns are the worst possible, James had fourth or fifth degree burns covering his entire body. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, James was a shell of black and white crust, cracking in crimson. We all thought he was dead. But once Sarah stopped screaming, James started coughing. Day 2 James was airlifted to a hospital in Joplin. Since our tiny town only has a small walk in clinic, he was more like a brother to me than just a friend. We grew up together, played on the same little league team since we were five, and spent 90% of our time together from the first day of kindergarten when we met until his accident 13 years later. We'd just graduated high school the previous spring and were about to head to college together where we were planning to be roommates. Needless to say, we were close enough, I was willing to drop everything, including putting off college a little longer, to go with him, to the hospital, to await the inevitable. Flying to the hospital with James was terrifying. I'd never been on a helicopter before, and I hoped never to experience it again. James's breathing was extremely labored, but... Surprisingly, he had strong vitals. The Air Evac paramedics were amazed that he was still alive with the extent of his burns. When the ambulance first arrived after I called 911, they put him on the stretcher, and I overheard the local paramedics discussing how strange it was that his skin was solid rather than sloughing off, which is the norm for extreme burns. James's skin had solidified into a black and white, coarse, rock-like roughness. James's parents were on a cruise somewhere in the Gulf, so I was the only one with him the first day in the hospital. He first spoke at around 9am the morning after arriving. His mouth never moved, but I heard him as clear as if nothing was wrong. It was strange though his voice was different i attributed this at the time to the burns to his throat 151 hours i heard my dying friend say over the infomercial on the hospital tv i jumped out of the chair and ran to his side i was afraid to touch him because I didn't know if it would hurt him. But I got as close to his face as I could manage and said, James, are you awake? 9,060 minutes. Running out of the room to grab a doctor, I ran face first into James's dad, Jeremy. He just spoke. What? "'What did he say?' Jeremy exclaimed as we ran back into the room with James's mum, and the doctor following close behind. We stood in the room talking to James for almost an hour, trying to get more out of him, but he just laid there, silent and still. The doctor explained to me that there's no way James could have spoken and that this must have been my imagination.' I know it wasn't my imagination. 146 hours, 9,060 minutes. I pulled out my cell phone and opened the calculator. I never was any good with math. 9,060 minutes divided by 60 minutes is 151 hours. What could it mean? What's going to happen in 151 hours? The more I thought about it, the more my head hurt, so I laid down in the chair to take a nap. I heard James's mum Brenda sneeze from the bathroom, and as my eyes adjusted to the dark, I could see that Jeremy wasn't in the room, so I started checking my Facebook. I had a very much larger amount of notifications from friends in Descartes wanting to know how James is doing. So, I began replying to them. He'll be here soon. One thousand three hundred forty-two. I knew it wasn't my imagination. James was definitely speaking. But again, even in the dark, I could tell his mouth didn't move. He'll be here soon. One thousand three hundred forty-one. Suddenly, the television turned on, and the sound of static was so loud I didn't hear the chair fall over when I jumped to my feet. The bathroom door flew open, and Brenda came out with a panicked look on her face. What was that? She asked exasperatedly. The TV came on, nearly gave me a heart attack in the now illuminated room from the bathroom light I could see that the chair I had been sitting on was in several pieces (coughs) shards even all over the floor day three I'm standing in a field surrounded by a dark forest. I can faintly hear the sound of someone or something breathing heavily. I initially felt very calm, relaxed even, but the feeling of dread suddenly washes over me like a dense cloud. The forest is getting darker and seems to be pushing closer, closer, closer to me. And I can see the shadow of a man standing in the shadow of the trees. I awoke in a cold sweat in the new chair in James's room. I could still feel the terror I felt in the dream, almost as if I were not dreaming at all. James was still lying in his bed where he hadn't moved an inch since being placed there by the hospital staff. If I hadn't been able to hear the cackle of his breath and hear the steady, rhythmic beeps coming from his monitors, I would believe he were dead. His chest wasn't moving with his breath as it should. Instead, he was the statue of what once was an 18-year-old man, lying on the white and blue hospital linens. Brenda and I didn't leave James's room except for quick trips to the hospital cafeteria, and Jeremy was there as well, but went outside to smoke quite often. The light from the window seemed to flow through the curtains and wrap its warm glow all over the bed where James laid, leaving a grim shadow in every space surrounding the bed. I could see the shape of Brenda slouched in another chair in the opposite corner from my chair. I couldn't see her face, but I got the feeling that she was staring at me. It was a very unnerving feeling that only added more distress to my mood after my nightmare. ''Brenda?'' I said, with a crack in my voice that caused me to quickly clear my voice so as not to sound so afraid. No response came from her corner of the room, but I could see her head tilt slightly to the left. Brenda, are you awake? I said again, with more confidence. I wanted to be strong for her. She was a frail woman who stood only about five feet tall, weighing no more than 120 pounds. Still, I received no reply. The silence was driving the feeling of dread back into the pit of my stomach. So... I decided to get some fresh air. When I opened the door and the light from the hallway outside spilled into the room, I looked back to see if Brenda was asleep. Her eyes were wide open as if in a state of panic, staring at James. A chill immediately spread through my body and then... I noticed the blood. It wasn't much, just a trickle going from her nose around the corner of her mouth and dripping from her chin. I yelled into the hallway for a nurse and ran to her side. I quickly pulled my hand away as I touched hers. It was hotter, as if a furnace burned beneath her skin. The nurse finally came into the room, an older woman with her hair in a tight grey bun, and I told her that Brenda had a very high temperature and she wasn't responding to me. When the nurse saw the blood dripping from her nose, she pushed a button on her phone and a voice came over the intercom and several more nurses ran into the room. They put Brenda on a stretcher and told me to get a hold of Jeremy to let him know what was going on while they moved her into another room. As I stood in James's room, calling Jeremy repeatedly, James spoke for the first time that day. One down. The fire alarm came blaring all around me, and the sprinklers came on. As I ran into the hallway to find out what was going on, I could see the smoke coming from a room three doors down. As I ran to the room, the burning, pungent smell hit my nose. It was a smell I had only smelled once in my life. It was how James smelled when we found him on the hill. When I got to the door, the sprinkler system turned off, and a nurse, was frantically spraying a fire extinguisher on the bed and on what was once a person. Day four. The hospital staff were completely baffled over what happened to Brenda. They had just laid her down in the bed, a few doors down from James's room, and as she let out a long breath, her skin turned to deep crimson, and she caught fire from the inside. I still hadn't been able to reach Jeremy, and they had not given the hospital another contact for emergencies, so I was alone with James. He hadn't moved at all, and I still had to listen to his breathing and the beeps from the monitors, just to make sure he was alive. There were times when his breath sounded like whispers. (laughs) I knew I must have been sleep-deprived, as I thought I heard him whispering the names of his mother, father, and our friends. couldn't take being alone any longer so I called Sarah she and Jenny were on their way to keep me company when my phone rang when I saw Jeremy's name on the caller ID I let out an audible sigh of relief <clears throat> Jeremy where are you I've been trying to reach you since yesterday afternoon silence Hello? Can you hear me? Nothing. <laughs> Look, if you can hear me, get to the hospital immediately. <sighs> Something has happened, but it, it, it's best for you to hear it in person. As soon as I finished this statement, the line turned to static and then cut out. I wasn't sure if Jeremy had heard me, because obviously something was wrong with his phone. I kept trying to call him back, but it only went to his voicemail each time. Sarah and Jenny arrived at the hospital about two hours after my one-sided conversation with Jeremy. I'd been sitting in James' room with the lights on, as we'd been mostly sitting in the dark until Brenda's incident. I couldn't be in the room with the lights off any longer. The constant fear and feeling in the back of my mind that something else was in the room with us would not leave my thoughts. When the girls walked into the room, Sarah immediately began crying at the sight of James. Since she hadn't seen him since we left in the helicopter, I think she'd forgotten how terrible he looked. His skin was still a solid black-and-white scab, An image that will never leave my thoughts. Every time I close my eyes, I see him lying there, the blackened, broken remnants of my best friend. I explained to Jenny and Sarah everything that had happened since James and I arrived at the hospital. Jenny had been pretty calm the entire time, until I mentioned Brenda. I had a dream that I was sitting at the top of the hill, next to the tree that burnt with James. In the dream, at first, the tree was standing, and it was it was a beautiful day. Uh, suddenly, dark clouds rolled in, and among the sound of thunder, I began hearing a deafening scream. When I turned to the tree, Brenda was standing there, with her arms outstretched and in flames. I didn't know what to say to this. It was eerily similar to my nightmare, but how could she have dreamt of Brenda burning before even knowing what had happened to her? We talked about these things and tried to come up with some kind of logical explanation for everything that has happened since the lightning storm, but we were at a loss and became more frightened the more we spoke about it. Sarah couldn't handle sitting in the room. And talking about it next to James. So we decided to go get lunch. I spoke to James's nurse and gave her my cell phone number. I asked her to call me immediately if Jeremy showed up or if there were any changes in James's condition. Walking out of the hospital, I realized, as the sunlight blinded me, that I hadn't left the building since I had gotten there Thursday night. The air outside was hot, humid, and I immediately began sweating, causing my clothes to stick to my skin. Once my eyes adjusted to the brightness of the day, I began looking around for any sign of Jeremy. There were a few people walking between their cars and the building, but he was nowhere to be seen. When we arrived at Sarah's car, I noticed Jeremy and Brenda's gold Buick, parked a few spots away. I jogged over to the car, hoping for some sign of Jeremy, but the car was clean and empty. We went to the Panera Bread, about a mile from the hospital, a nice, quiet restaurant where we could talk more and get some food. I thought we'd be able to talk about everything, but we mostly just sat in silence, eating our lunch. Once we'd finished, and realized we couldn't talk about James's situation anymore, we headed back to the hospital. <sighs> my heart sank to the bottom of my stomach as we pulled into the parking lot. Sirens and lights seemed to be coming from every direction, and tunnel vision overtook my eyesight, and my attention went directly to the fire truck spraying water on a burning vehicle, a once clean and empty golden Buick, and the coal-black remains of a man lying on the pavement, surrounded by paramedics. As if he were speaking over my shoulder, I heard James's decaying voice. Two down... Day five. Oh, two down. Brenda and Jeremy. Something more than an accidental lightning strike was happening, but the three of us couldn't put our fingers on it. James was a burnt crust of a man, lying helplessly in a hospital bed, and his parents were both dead. Brenda and Jeremy were victims of what to be spontaneous combustion spontaneous combustion this this can't be real what the hell is going on I asked Sarah and Jenny in the waiting room outside of the burn unit I just don't understand how someone can just catch on fire without anything to ignite it Sarah replied sounding as shaken as she looked as we sat there brooding over our current nightmare, we could see through the doorway that several nurses were gathered next to the door to James's room. I was curious as to what was going on, so I got up and walked over to them. As I approached, I could barely hear a young nurse say, 47 hours, and then he said, 2820 minutes, uh, he'll be here soon. But his mouth, I I don't... My entire body froze, and a sense of hurried panic struck me like a baseball bat to the face. He's counting down. The nurses all turned toward me, and the one who was speaking asked, What? Who's counting down? James. (laughs) I don't know what it means. But on Friday he said some hours and minutes, just like you just said. No one believed me then, but I know what I heard. And now you've heard it too. I don't know what I heard. His mouth didn't move, and he's in a coma. There's no way he spoke. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking when I heard it the first time. Now... Both his parents are dead. They burned alive. Something is going on, and he is trying to warn us. The oldest of the nurses was standing at my side now, with her hand on my shoulder. In the most sincere, sad tone I'd ever heard, she said, Honey, you need to get some sleep. You've been here for days, sleeping in that chair. You must be exhausted. As I was about to agree with her and tell her I need a bed and some real rest, the door to James's room slammed shut, and the nurses all let out short screams. The nurse standing closest to his room slowly opened the door and stood in the door frame, mouth agape. No one was moving. They were all just standing and staring into the room. I had to see what was going on, and at this point Jenny and Sarah were standing at my side. We walked slowly towards the door, as all five of the nurses stood there in a trance-like state, staring through the doorway. Just when I got to where I could almost see into the room... The door slammed shut again, hitting the nurse directly in the face. She fell to the floor, sobbing in a pool of blood gushing out of her nose. I ignored the tumult around me as the nurses snapped out of their state of stupor to help their co-worker and turn the knob on James's door. A humid wave of heat rushed over me like a hot wind as I pushed the door open. The immediate smell was almost too much to handle, but it was gone as soon as it brushed my nostrils. Looking into the room, nothing was out of the ordinary. The curtains were open and the daylight spilled through the blinds flooding the bed where my crumbling comatose friend lay in his bed. I turned to the nurses and asked them what happened what they saw when they opened the door. But they all acted like nothing had happened. When I mentioned their frozen gaze into the room for what felt like several minutes, they all played dumb and said they had no idea what I was talking about. Sarah and Jenny defended me, confirming what I claimed to see. The nurses adamantly disagreed, though and went their separate directions to check on other patients as if nothing had happened even the nurse with blood down the front of her scrubs walked away returning to her normal duties i stood in the doorway staring at james's feet protruding from the bottom of his sheets like logs of burning coal they stuck out motionlessly black and white and crusted with blood As I walked into the room, I felt a burning sensation in my nose, and the smell of rotten eggs, sulfur, overtook my senses. I'm standing on the hill again, the moon peeking out from behind the fast-moving, dark storm clouds, and I can see the black circle where the great oak once stood. All around me, I can feel the pressure of the trees in the forest, breathing an overwhelming fear into my soul. Lights suddenly appear in the distance. A semicircle of burning crosses in front of me, to the left and to the right. No, not crosses. People. I see people burning with their arms outstretched. The screams and wails begin softly and I realize I recognize their voices. Sarah, Jenny, mom, dad, my brother. Every screaming, burning face was that of someone I care about. As I run back to each person, trying desperately to find a way to help them, I see him standing on the hill. James, he's still burnt. But I can make out his features now. Unmoving, he stands, staring at me with a sinister grin. The corners of his mouth stretch from ear to ear, wider than any natural smile. I realize the air around him is inflamed, and I hear the sound of static, white noise slowly growing, increasingly louder in my head. Day six. The room they had placed me in, after I had apparently fainted inside James' room, was dark when I awoke, but I could hear people walking and speaking outside my door. I tried to sit up, but my head started swimming, and I had to lie back down to keep from passing out again. I yelled for a nurse a few times, and finally, One came into the room. How are you feeling? She asked. I'm dizzy. What happened? You passed out in your friend's room yesterday, so we put you in an empty room to rest. You haven't been sleeping well since you've been here. Don't worry, you won't be charged. We have plenty of rooms available. So your stay is, uh, off the books. <sighs> Thanks. Where are the two girls I was with? They're in your friend's room. I didn't like the thought of them being in the room with James, since we didn't know what was going on. So I forced myself to sit up, and get out of bed. I was still wearing my clothes from yesterday. Well, <laughs> actually, the same clothes I've been wearing since last Thursday. I then realized how bad I must smell, but I was glad they didn't put me in a hospital gown. I walked slowly to James's room, and I could hear Sarah and Jenny laughing as I approached the door. When I walked around the corner, they jumped up and both hugged me. "Oh my God, are you okay?" Sarah asked. "I'm fine." "'What's going on? Has James spoken anymore? "'No. We've just been sitting here talking about some of the funny stuff that you used to do. Like last year, during the bomb threat at school, when we were all sitting in the football field bleachers waiting for them to let us go back inside. (sighs) Oh yeah, (laughs) that was great. Mrs. Francis is probably still pissed about her shirt,' I said. Remembering the time he stomped on a ketchup packet, just as our English teacher was walking by. I think I need to eat. You guys want to go get something? Yeah. I've been craving pizza for days, Jenny said, jumping out of her seat. As we walked through the rows of cars to get to Sarah's Ultima, a dog jumped on me from behind, knocking me to the ground. Panicking, I rolled over, ready to fight the dog off, when Charlie started licking my face. Holy shit! Charlie! I gasped. How did he get here? Descartes is so far away. There's no way he walked here, Sarah exclaimed. I don't know, but he's here, so we have to do something with him. "'James would kill us if something happened to him,' I replied. "'On the way to get pizza, we stopped at a pet store "'and bought some food and a leash for the black lab. "'I was completely mystified at the fact that Charlie had made it "'all the way to the hospital in six days from Descartes, "'which is almost 90 miles from Joplin. "'After lunch, we went back to the hospital.' And decided to take turns sitting with Charlie outside until we could get a hold of someone to come get him Sarah stayed with him while Jenny and I got in the elevator as we passed floor 2 3 then 4 I realized it was strangely quiet in the elevator not only was there no lame piano music playing over the small speaker in the ceiling I couldn't even hear myself breathing. I stomped my foot on the floor and heard nothing. Jenny was standing behind me, but when I turned around, she was facing the opposite direction. I assumed she was looking in the mirror, but I couldn't see her face, so I said her name. Again, I heard nothing. My heart was beating out of my chest and I could hardly breathe. I started to reach my hand out to touch Jenny's shoulder, but just before my fingers grazed her shirt, the elevator door opened and a torrent of sound crashed into my ears. I was completely overwhelmed when the sound of beeping monitors, shuffling papers and nurses walking in their comfortable cushioned shoes hit me all at once. Jenny turned and walked out of the elevator as if nothing had happened, and turned to me as the doors began to shut behind her. Rushing back, she stuck her hand in the crack between the closing doors and asked me if I was coming. Did you not hear that? I asked her in complete disbelief. Hear what? Nothing. Never mind, I replied not wanting to sound like I was losing my mind. We sat in James's room for two hours, calling everyone we knew in an attempt to find someone to come and get Charlie and take him home. Finally, Jenny's sister agreed to ride with her boyfriend to the hospital tonight to pick him up. We were very relieved to not have to take turns sitting outside with the dog all night, so I called Sarah to let her know we'd only have to watch him for a few more hours. The phone rang three times. Then? Hello, this is Sarah. You know what to do, her voicemail stated. I called at least fifteen times before I finally got an answer. The person on the line wasn't Sarah, though. Twenty-nine hours. 1,740 minutes. He will be here soon. I slammed the phone down immediately after hearing James's voice on the line. What the hell? We need to go get Sarah, now! I shrieked to Jenny as I jumped out of my seat and ran to the elevator. When I reached the elevator, I decided there was no way I was getting back in there after what had happened on the way up. "'so I kept running to the stairwell, "'with Jenny following close behind. "'What is going on?' she was saying as we ran down the hallway. "'It was James's voice that answered Sarah's phone,' I replied "'as we pushed through the doorway to the stairs. "'We ran as fast as we could all the way down the five flights of stairs, "'and even though my adrenaline was pumping more than it had in my lifetime, "'I was struggling to catch my breath when we reached the bottom floor.' Sitting in front of the door, at the bottom of the stairs, was Charlie. I didn't know what was going on and this dog was really starting to freak me out, but I went past him anyways and ran as fast as I could to the nurse's smoking area where we had left Sarah. She was nowhere to be found. Her car keys were sitting on the bench where we had sat when we went into the hospital but she wasn't there. Jenny and I searched, yelling her name for at least half an hour before the feeling of exhaustion overtook us. Jenny tried calling her for the next four hours, but it went to her voicemail each time. We both sat on the bench, petting Charlie and crying until Jenny's sister and her boyfriend showed up to get him. After explaining what had happened to James's parents, and now Sarah missing, they took the dog and headed back to Descartes as fast as they had arrived. They wanted nothing to do with what was going on, and I didn't blame them. The sun had set, and the parking lot lights were shining dimly throughout the multicolored rows of cars as they pulled away. Jenny and I continued to sit on the bench, trying to figure out where Sarah could have gone without her keys and phone and trying to hold ourselves together. The wind was picking up and it looked like another storm was blowing in, so we decided to head back inside. When I stood up, I saw him. A black shadow was standing between two cars, staring directly at me. As my heart beat painfully in my chest, I recognized the blood-crusted, black-and-white scabbed man that was once my friend. I screamed. It wasn't a manly scream, or one that would incite fear in others. It was a scream of a person completely scared for their life, and the realization that there was nothing they could do about it. Jenny grabbed me and asked why I had screamed. I had scared her half to death. I turned and pointed in James's direction and started to tell her what I had seen. But he was gone. Only the dimly lit cars in the parking lot remained under the glow of the street lamps. Day 7. Last night, after I saw, or imagined, James in the parking lot, Jenny dragged me back into the hospital and up to James's room to prove to me that I didn't see him standing menacingly between the cars. I was very hesitant to walk through the doorway into his room, but Jenny pushed me forward until I could see him lying in his bed, in the same position he'd been in the last six days. Thankful it was all in my imagination, Jenny and I fell asleep in separate chairs, exhausted from everything we went through that day. <sighs> I'm standing on the hill again. Jenny standing, standing to my, standing my right, her right. long red hair waving. The woeful, wailing wind, thunder and lightning are crashing above our heads. Jenny reaches out and grabs my hand. I can feel her apprehension as she squeezes my hand tightly, but I'm unable to reassure. her. I'm unable to speak entirely. We begin walking towards the forest as an invisible force draws us forward. As we reach the tree line, a thousand and one voices ring out in all directions. Screams from faces unseen pierce directly into my soul. I can barely contain my fear and the uneasiness in my stomach. Jenny lets go of my hand and I turn towards her. She is gone. I turn around, searching desperately for any sign of her. Suddenly, I'm back at the tree line. Looking up at the hill is the Great oak Tree. Jenny and Sarah are at the crest of the hill, one on each side of the tree. They raise their hands to the sky, looking upward as two identical bolts of lightning light up the night sky. The lightning bolts each connect with one of my friends, along with the tree. They burst into flames. The pain of losing more friends tears at my heart as I sink to the cold, wet ground. A hand grips my shoulder and pulls me upwards, but I can't see through the tears in my eyes. Someone is standing in front of me, holding me up with a tight grip on each of my shoulders. I rub my eyes to clear my vision. James is standing in front of me, holding me up, desolately looking into my eyes. The James standing before me is not the James from the hospital bed. The James standing before me is my friend, with curly brown hair and pale freckled skin. Suddenly, with another lightning strike, he is the black, crusted remains that I have come to know over the last week. The terror overwhelms me again, but I am frozen in my place by his grip. His yellow eyes roll into the back of of his skull. skull. He turns his head head to the sky, sky. and a black Black cloud rises rises forcefully out of his unnaturally wide, wide. open Open mouth. mouth. I awoke to the sound of the Price is Right on the TV. After rubbing the sleep out of my eyes, I looked around the room. James was still lying in his bed, and Jenny was sitting in her chair. Deja vu creeped into my mind as I realized she was sitting in the same, dark corner where Brenda had sat a few days ago, just before burning to death. I jumped from my seat and ran to Jenny's side. I grabbed her shoulders and shook her awake. "'What the hell are you doing?' she said angrily as I violently woke her up. "'I'm sorry. I was afraid you were dead.' Oh, stop. I'm fine. Let's go get some coffee. We have to find Sarah, she replied. We left the room and went into the waiting room where stale burnt coffee sat on a counter. After filling our cups, we walked down the stairs to the parking lot. It was an unnaturally hot day for the season, and my clothes instantly began sticking to my skin with sweat. I thought to myself that Sarah was somewhere out there she didn't know anyone in the city and since she'd left her keys and cell phone the only explanation that made sense to me was that she was kidnapped or worse I thought back to my nightmare and a chill moved down my spine despite the heat Jenny and I walked the entirety of the hospital parking lot desperately searching for any sign of her. After about an hour, we were beginning to feel hopeless, and Jenny suggested taking Sarah's car to check out coffee shops in the mall, (laughs) Sarah's two biggest vices. I felt like it was useless, but I couldn't say it to Jenny. I didn't want to break her spirits any more than they already were. The first coffee shop we checked out was crowded with a typical coffeehouse crowd of hipsters and yuppies, but no trace of Sarah. While there, we bought ourselves each a cup of overpriced coffee and bagels and headed back to the car. When we walked into the coffee shop, it was hot, clear and sunny outside. Now, when leaving, clouds filled the sky, blotting out the sun, and increasing my feeling of despair. We walked through the small parking lot to where I had parked Sarah's car, but were not expecting what was waiting for us. Sarah was sitting in the back seat. When we saw her head through the back window, Jenny and I broke into a run and jumped into the car. Sarah was staring straight ahead unblinking and sweating profusely. I said her name several times, but received no reply as a slight stream of blood began trickling from her nose. Help me get her out of the car! I yelled to Jenny. When I grabbed her arm to pull her towards me, I could feel a burning skin through her shirt. As soon as we pulled her out of the car, and set her down in the grass. She suddenly jerked her head and looked to the sky. Her mouth opened wide, as if she were screaming, but she made no sound. The black smoke that rose from her lungs and out of her open mouth rose quickly upward, followed by bright red and yellow flames. Jenny stumbled backward and tripped on the curb, hitting her head on the pavement as she collapsed. I wasn't there to witness Brenda and Jeremy's incidents, but I imagined they must have happened in the same manner, eerily similar to my nightmare the night before. I dialed 911 on my cell phone as I watched one of my best friends burn from the inside out, reduced to a black pile of grisly remains. When the flames that engulfed Sarah were all but extinguished, she turned her head quickly to the left. And though she didn't have eyes, I could feel her staring directly at me. Three down, 30 minutes. He will be here soon. The emergency responders arrived shortly after but I was in a near comatose state when they began questioning me about what had happened. I saw them place Jenny on a stretcher and put her in the ambulance as an officer helped me to his cruiser. We followed the ambulance to the hospital and I walked alongside Jenny's stretcher as they wheeled her into the emergency room still in a haze of disbelief. (laughs) I didn't register the sound of my phone ringing in my pocket for several seconds before I answered. Hello? Mr. Reynolds, this is Jacqueline from the intensive burn unit at Mercy Memorial. I regret to inform you that James Martin has passed. I hung up the phone. It took seven days for James to die after being struck by lightning and burnt down to an unrecognizable black, white, and red crusted remains of a man. From over my shoulder, I heard James's voice for the last time. <laughs> he is here. <laughs> After Mar. it's been two winks since he was born out of James's death, forged from darkness out of the incineration of Jeremy, Brenda, and Sarah. I am only eighteen years old, but, but in the last few weeks of my life, I have felt true terror and witnessed genuine pain. Nightmares now haunt my nights, and startling visions cloud my days. I'm unsure what is real and what he is putting in my head. Jenny didn't survive the massive haemorrhage she suffered from her fall and died within 12 hours of James. When the doctor sat me down to tell me the news, I was in such a shock from the previous day's events that her death didn't affect me as it should have. I grew up with only three friends and now all of them are dead. They've all died and left me alone to deal with Whatever this darkness is that was left behind when James passed. Many times in the last two weeks, I've seen all of my dead friends. I know it's something sinister and not actually them, but it didn't really frighten me when they appeared, at least not at first. Numb from the pain of losing my only support system and returning home to Descartes, trying to cope with all that has happened, it's... "'slowly tearing away at my sanity. "'To make matters worse, my home life isn't ideal. "'My parents are too caught up in their menial lives and addictions "'to care about what I'm going through. "'If I'm being completely honest, "'they've never cared whether or not I'm even here.' "'The vision started before I'd even made it back to Descartes. "'I was driving Sarah's car along a winding stretch of highway "'when she appeared.' sitting in the passenger seat. It didn't scare me like you'd think. She was just suddenly there. But in my mind, I felt like she'd been there since I departed the hospital. Sarah was always beautiful, but in death, she appeared to me to be the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. As she just sat there, looking ahead as if enjoying the ride back home. I didn't acknowledge her either. Not that I was afraid, but... More that the peacefulness of the moment was breathtaking, and I didn't want it to end. When I stopped the car at her apartment complex and opened the door to get out, she was gone. After returning home, I always felt as if I wasn't alone. I would see James, Sarah, Jeremy and Brenda randomly throughout the day. They never spoke to me, but were almost always around. James would be on my couch watching TV or walking down the sidewalk on the opposite side of the road. Sarah would be sitting at the table with me at the local coffee shop. Jeremy and Brenda were always together when I saw them. Once they sat in the car next to me at a red light, chatting as if their lives had never even skipped a beat. So, as you can see, at first that was nothing to fear. My deceased friend seemed to be at peace with death and continued to spend time doing the things they'd done before they died. Even Charlie took to following me around. The day after I sat with Sarah in the coffee shop, Charlie showed up on my front porch, and hasn't left my side since. It was his presence that clued me into the fact that these apparitions, what I thought to be my friends, are not what they seem. Anytime one of them would show up while Charlie was at my side... The hair on the back of his neck would stand on end, and he would growl until they were out of sight. The first moment I truly became frightened by them, I awoke to what sounded like a rabid dog outside my bedroom window. When I looked outside, Charlie was barking madly at all of my friends as they walked away from the house, heading into the woods. That moment was an eye-opener gave me the awareness I needed to realize that, well, things were changing, which made my stomach wrench in fear. From that point on, I became exceedingly aware of the terrible things happening in Descartes. Strange deaths and suicides were going unnoticed, getting no more attention from authorities than any normal death, and every night the images of each death haunted my dreams, I watched myself choke old Mrs. Cannon to death on the thorny stems of her prize roses, shoving them down her throat. I saw myself holding the faces of the 14-year-old Spencer twins in their cereal milk at their breakfast table. In a dream, I watched idly as I poured a vat of liquid nitrogen over the top of Mr. Francis, the high school chemistry teacher's head, crystallizing his face into a frozen depiction of horror. Tammy and Justin Stewart, Both Sunday school teachers and active volunteers in the community were found one Sunday afternoon when they didn't show up at church. In my dream, I remember hanging Tammy in her closet with one of Justin's ties, after stabbing her husband multiple times in the eyes with a fondue fork. Slowly, but surely, my town was dying. Not only was everyone dying in horrible ways, and I dreamt I was a killer... I seemed to be the only person who realized the deaths were strange. As each day brought on a new picture in the obituary section of the Times, I became more and more agitated with my surroundings. Seeing my dead friends wandering around town as if they were still living was starting to truly terrify me, and the fear only grew stronger as I began hearing the whispers. Voices I did not know... Sometimes words I did not understand were constantly tearing at my sanity. I was spiraling into an abyss of culminating fear and nervousness. The fifth day after returning to Descartes, I went to bed around 9pm. I hadn't done much during the day, but due to the stress I was feeling from everything that was happening, and the constant strain on my sanity, caused by the whispers in my ears and the nightmares at night, well, I could hardly stay awake. A rage was building up inside me, and I wanted nothing more than to sleep it away. I thought, if only I could get enough sleep, I could wake up refreshed and find a way to go to college sooner than originally planned, move away from Descartes and the evil that now resides here. escape. I'm walking down the hallway as I hear my parents talking quietly. As I round the corner, I can see them at the kitchen table. My father has a large elastic band wrapped around his bicep as he flexes his fingers, preparing his vein for the hypodermic needle. I watch as my mother pushes the poison into his bloodstream and the look of pure ecstasy that immediately registers in the corners of his lips as his eyes roll into the back of his head. I see my mother fidgeting as she pulls the band off his arm and starts wrapping it around her own. A spoon filled with a dark colored liquid sits on the table next to where she set the needle. After pulling the contents of the spoon into the barrel of the syringe, heat swells inside my gut as I feel more anger in that moment than I have ever felt before. My dear, worthless mother begins pushing the contents into her vein, allowing her heart to pump liquid death through her body. I cannot control myself as I come down on her with the scissors I pulled out of the knife block on the counter next to her head. My skin is burning as I repeatedly smash the meat shears in her neck and chest, relishing in the spray of blood now soaking my face and shirt. Stepping back, I realize my father's eyes are now open and staring at me in disbelief. He says something about killing his buzz as I slam my body into his, spilling him from the chair. When he falls, I see in slow motion as the side of his head collides with the kitchen counter. The corner of the stained countertop pierces his temple, as the light is immediately drawn out of his eyes. There is a sullen thud as his body hits the floor, but the feeling inside me is as if I'd pushed the heroin into my veins as they had moments before. I woke in my bed sheets sticking to my body as I slid my feet to the floor. As I stood up, I pulled the sheets off of me and the dark brown stains were unmistakable as I realized I must not have been dreaming. Like a zombie, I moved slowly out of my bedroom, walked down the hallway and emerged into the kitchen to a sight worse than I could have imagined. My parents lay exactly as they had in my dreams. My mother slouched in the chair with a pair of bloody scissors on the floor next to her feet, the rubber band still tied around her arm. My father lay on the floor next to his toppled chair with a pool of blood congealed around his head. My only thought at that moment was, How could I let this happen? Out of my peripheral vision, coming from the living room to my left, I see the blackened remnants of James walking towards me. Turning to run out of the room, I slipped in blood as he was suddenly at my feet, staring down at me with menacing yellow eyes. The body that was James's, as he lay in his deathbed at the hospital, was a mass of black and white scabs crusted around bright red blood and flesh. The body poised at my feet looked the same, where before was blood and flesh, now appeared to be an abyss of flames radiating beyond the black and white crusted scabs. I blacked out from fear. Afraid to open my eyes, I could feel a warm breeze on my exposed skin as I was only wearing a pair of shorts when I passed out on my kitchen floor. After a few minutes of listening to the voices in my head, I finally worked up the courage to open my eyes. I was lying outside, in my backyard, under the pine tree where once hung a tire swing. In its place, though, a noose hung ominously above me. I jumped up and ran inside, only to be taken aback by the cleanliness of the kitchen. My parents' bodies were gone, and the room was actually cleaner than I ever remember it being. I quickly went into my bedroom and packed two suitcases with everything I couldn't live without, and loaded it into my parents' old pickup. I had to leave. I didn't have a choice. Descartes was killing me, along with everyone else in the town. I was sure that, as long as I could get out of town, the horror wouldn't follow me. That was two weeks ago, and the whispers are still present every moment I am awake. I was sure that, If I could just get out of town, the nightmares would stop. But every time I close my eyes, I see another friend burning alive. Or see myself tearing the life out of a stranger at the hotel where I happen to be sleeping at night. I was sure that if I could just get out of town, I would stop seeing the ghosts of my dead friends. But even yesterday, as I crossed the border into Arkansas, Jenny sat to my right. Staring ahead as if wondering where I was taking her. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if I'll ever escape this. The feeling that the demon born from James's death is following me only dissipates if I'm moving. Every time I stop to eat or sleep, I can feel him getting closer. I can feel the anger inside me threatening to erupt the way it did the night my parents died. Or the night... I thought they died. I'm still not sure if it really happened, if I really killed them. But I know something happened, and I can't stop to let it happen again. So, my only choice is to keep moving. I'm almost out of money now, so I know I'll have to find some way to come up with the funds to keep going. But I'm terrified of what the time I'm stuck in one place may bring. I just hope the trail of bodies the voices leave behind isn't so big that I'm caught and locked away. I'm afraid of what could happen to me in a cell, with nowhere to run. I must find a way to make the dream stop. I have to keep moving. It's the only way. I said it's taken me um, the best part of three years to finish that one off, and I hope it was worth it. I really enjoyed returning to this one, Uh, redoing certain parts, uh, revamping others, uh, mixing the sound level correctly because it was very quiet to begin with, and, of course, you know, giving you a hell of a story for the middle of the week. Well, that's it until Friday. Of course, I'll be back. You know I will. And you're going to join me again, aren't you? Yes, indeed you will. I know, I know, I know. But for now, sweet dreams and bye-bye.